So if you were here last week, you know that we are starting a brand new series today, which is titled Image Bearers, okay? Image Bearers. Now, for some of you, that might be language that you are familiar with. Maybe for others, that's something you're quite unfamiliar with. Either way, this is a very, very important concept that we see in Scripture that I believe we need to better understand and apply to our lives. I think this is something that maybe we're missing out on, and it's causing some damages that we don't even fully understand. And so as we move forward in this series, I hope that God softens our hearts. I hope he opens our minds to the truth of what this really means for us. And for just some really quick background, um, this series has been in the works for about six to eight months now. Okay, um, because back then I was uh, I was reading a book by a man named N. T. Wright, who's just a wonderful resource for spiritual matters if you were interested. But I was reading this book, and and within the book he made a really simple but a really profound statement that really caught my attention. It was one of those statements that normally I think I would just read right past, but for some reason it was like highlighted on the page. And the statement that he made was simply this. He said, our human vocation is ultimately image-bearing. Our human vocation, what that means is our calling, our purpose, the reason why we are here ultimately comes down to this concept of image-bearing. So so I started to ponder that. I started to to think about that a little bit. And what I started to, to, to realize is how amazing it would be if we actually understood that. The type of impact that it would make if we actually lived our lives with that perspective and understood the implications of that. And so hopefully over these next few weeks, we will begin to grasp that. We'll begin to understand what that really means and how we can indeed live it out. And so we're gonna begin our series today by jumping right into scripture. It's always good to to start with scripture, right? So we're going to jump right into this because this concept of image bearing is something that we see right out of the gate. I mean, literally, Genesis 1, we begin to read, and this rises to the surface. And not only that, any time that it's mentioned after that, it almost always drives us back to Genesis 1. So there's obviously something really important about this context within Genesis 1 that we need to be very aware of. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about that. Today, So we're going to go to Genesis 1. We're going to start in uh, verse 26, and we're going to move our way into chapter 2 a little bit as well. Pay really close attention to the language and the way that this is set up, because it's very, very interesting. Follow along with me. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth And subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. 
And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now we move into chapter two, starting in verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So from the very beginning of scripture, we see this concept right out of the gate that we are image bearers. In fact, this is really the primary explanation that we are given in scripture as to who we truly are. If you were to set off to to go to the Bible, trying to find what is your identity, who, who have you been created to be, this is the best explanation you will see. You are created in the image of God. Now, 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 there are three primary things that I think we can pull out from that framework, and this is actually what's going to be the outline of our series for the next three weeks, but I'm going to give you some of the answers right out of the gate so that you can begin to put this in the right perspective. But the three things that I think we can immediately pull from this context and from this framework is representation, relationship, and result. Representation, relationship, and result. Now, I know that means little to nothing to you right now, but I promise we will make sense of this. So let me highlight one of these uh, or a couple of these very quickly. First off, when we talk about representation, what exactly would that mean within the concept of us being image bearers? Well, in order to fully understand that, you have to go back to the Genesis 1 context because when this was written, it was during a time where there was a very kingdom-driven culture. In other words, as you look across the land, as you look across the regions, you would see these different kingdoms, these different empires. And within that structure, we would see the kings, right? These are the ones that would rule. These are the ones that would reign. They're the leaders of these domains. Well, what's interesting is what was customary during this time is the king would create images of himself, You could call them monuments or statues, even the the currency many times during that day. He would create these images and disperse them throughout the land so that anytime anybody saw it, they would know whose land they're in and who reigns supreme. So if you were walking through the Middle East and maybe you stumbled upon a statue of Pharaoh, you would know immediately, I'm in the land of Egypt and Pharaoh is king of this land. Now, if you begin to apply that to what that means for us as image bearers of the true king, you're gonna begin to see what that means for our lives and our perspectives. We'll talk about that next week. There's a lot to dig into. It's gonna be really, really helpful. The second thing I mentioned is relationship. And um, I don't know if you caught this, but even throughout our reading today, there was something very interesting happening. And that was in the language, there was a lot of plurality. Let me give you a few of uh, the examples here. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So there's some interesting plurality that's happening in the language. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So we see plurality again. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So over and over again in this particular context, we're going to see this idea of plurality. And what it's pointing us to is the idea of relationship, the idea of community, the idea of togetherness. Listen, there's something inherent within our image-bearing nature that should be communal. This is not a solo endeavor. You are not to do this alone. We are to come together to be his people. There's a lot of power and a lot of significance in that. And so we'll talk about that in two weeks from today. But today we're gonna talk about the third one that I mentioned, which is the result, okay? We're gonna start with the result, kind of flip it upside down because I want this to to really set the tone for everything else. Does that make sense? I want to lay this out as the foundation so as we build on top of it, we are ultimately reminded of what really lies beneath. This is the true core of things. Now, when I say the result, what I mean is what the result would be if we truly understood the significance of our image-bearing nature. What would it look like if we actually understood, comprehended what this means for our lives? This is the result that hopefully we can begin to uncover today. Now, if image bearing is the primary explanation that we have for who we are, and if the foundation of that truth is laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, then what I want to do is I want to better understand maybe the message that we're seeing within that context. What is the big picture of what is really being laid before us within that section of scripture? Now, we're not going to dive all the way into the creation narrative. Maybe we'll do that some other time. But I want to get enough of the picture so that we can really see what is being communicated to the people. In fact, real quick, um, a really good resource for this. This is one of the sources that I used for the message today. If you listen to podcasts, it's called the Bema Discipleship Podcast. That's B-E-M-A Discipleship Podcast. If you listen to those, I would encourage you download that. Super, super helpful, and it will dig a ton into what we're gonna talk about today. I know that we have some already in the room who enjoy that, um, so you'll see we're, we're talking about some of that today. But I wanna go ahead and dig right into things. But before we get into the actual text of today's message, I wanna start with the context. I feel like I say this every time I'm up here, but when we're reading through scripture, it's so very important that we understand the context. In fact, this is one of the reasons why there's a lot of misunderstanding around scripture because we read it through our lens and our perspective. We don't realize that there was a particular writer who's writing to a particular audience at a particular time, right? These things are important to true understanding. So there are three things within the context of the creation narrative that we very much need to understand. And the first one is this. The book of Genesis, and really Torah entirely, the first five books of the Bible, are historically accredited to Moses as the writer, Okay, so throughout the course of time, Moses typically has been given credit for writing these things. Now, there are some scholars that would say there were multiple writers, but for the most part, they say at the very least, Moses is leading the charge. Okay, so Moses is writing this. If that's the case, this is written probably sometime around 1400 B.C., Okay, so this is the time frame. So we're talking about a little over 3,000 years ago. As Moses is writing this, He's in the wilderness. 
He's with the people of Israel and they have the hope of the promised land that lies ahead of them. Okay, so, so these are some of the pieces of context that we need to pay attention to. A particular writer, a particular audience, and a particular time. Now that leads us to the second thing, which is we have to understand that what we just read and will continue to read is an ancient Eastern writing. Okay, it's an ancient Eastern writing. We forget about that sometimes, but this is not modern day literature. Moses is not writing this to a bunch of Americans in the 21st century. He's, he's writing this at a particular time in the ancient East. Now, the reason it's important to call that out is because there are very different people groups involved, right? In fact, one of the big things that, that we realize and, and have learned is that the way that we understand and learn and retain information today is very different than they did back then. And even historically in Jewish culture, it's very, very different. So let me explain that very quickly. In our modern day Western civilization, the way that we learn is very straightforward, right? It's, it's very logical. It's very reasoned. We're gonna give you a point. We're gonna support it with a bunch of information. You're gonna retain that information. And we call that learning. It's very, very straightforward. That is not at all how the ancient Eastern world learned things because the art of learning to them was all about discovery. There was, there was something to be discovered. So many times teachers would tell a story, they would write a poem, they would paint this picture. And within that, there was something to be discovered that you would then learn. They often called it treasure hunting. There's a treasure within the story that you need to find and retain. One of the best examples we have of this is in the New Testament with Jesus himself, right? Jesus almost primarily speaks by way of parables. What are those? They are stories that he seemingly made up that people in the culture would understand, but there's a, a treasure that's buried in there that they need to pull out so that they can learn and be enlightened, okay? So this is their way of learning, which leads us to the third thing, which is within the creation narrative, as we look to Genesis 1 into chapter 2, this is not a straightforward, logical piece of literature, Okay, what this is, is an ancient Eastern poem. That's what we read as we go through chapters one into chapter two. It's poetic language. You can see that very clearly when you study the Hebrew language. And this was a very common literary tool that teachers would use so the reader could discover truth. They could find that buried treasure that is held within. Now, why, why do we say that it's poetry? What is the evidence that points us in that direction? Well, because over and over again, we will see within this writing that there are rhythms, there are patterns, and there are refrains. All of that is very emblematic of poetry, right? You'll, you'll see this over and over again. In fact, even if you read it through in the English language, and I tried to kind of show that as I was reading today, there's a lot of repetition. It's like, okay, we get it, right? But, but these are called po poetic refrains. So let me give you a few examples of this. Um, one of them is, it was so. We'll, we'll read a paragraph, and then at the end, it will say, it was so. And then we'll read another paragraph, and it will say, it was so. And then another paragraph, it was so. Over and over again, we see this Hebrew phrase. Another one that we see is, and God saw. And then we'll read something else. And God saw. Over and over again, we see these refrains. We also see some really clear patterns. One of those is the number seven, 
okay? This is very important to poetic language. And, and if you have read through the creation narrative, you know right out of the gate that there are seven days of creation that are laid before us. But we'll see that number over and over and over again. In fact, the phrase that I just ta- told you about, it was so, is used exactly seven times within the narrative. The phrase, and God saw, is used exactly seven times within the narrative. Genesis chapter one, verse one, has exactly seven Hebrew words to start us off. So we see these patterns, we see this rhythm, we see these refrains that are held within. But again, the whole point of this is to enlighten a bigger idea, right? There's, there's a lesson, there's a treasure held within that we need to discover, And in this case, the poem is pointing to two big overarching ideas that we need to be aware of, okay? Two things that the writer's trying to get us to discover that we may be able to walk in these things. And the first one is very obvious, it's very overt, and that is that God is a creator, okay? He he, he starts the poem this way, God is a creator, now, for us, we know that, right? I mean, that's, that's something that seems automatic to us. We understand that. But remember, these people may be learning this for the very first time. God is a creator. And just as important as that, he is a good creator. Now, now that's, that's a pretty significant distinction, right? Not only is he a creator, but he is a good creator. And in fact, these are another one of those refrains that we see within the poem. We see over and over again, it was good. And then it will explain something, and then it was good. And it will explain something, and it was good. And I'll give you a wild guess how many times that phrase is used. But, but here's the key. Listen closely. One of the first things that the writer wants us to understand about God is that he's a good creator. So one of the first things that he's trying to enlighten the audience on is that he's a good creator. And within that frame, within that umbrella, he says, and he created you. He's a good creator. And by the way, he's the one that created you. Now think about if you were the intended audience, reading this for the very first time, learning this information for the very first time, God is good. He creates good stuff and he's the one that created me. Think about all that goodness that is wrapped. Think about the perspective that Moses is trying to show the people right out of the gate. In fact, if you know your Bibles, you know, we read it, in fact, today at the end of the sixth day, which is when mankind was created within the narrative. Not only does it say it was good, it says it was very good, very good. All of this goodness wrapped up that the writer wants us to understand, which leads us to the second overarching idea which is a little bit less obvious, but I would say is is maybe the primary treasure that he wants us to discover. And that is, if God is a good creator, and, and if God is the one that created you, that means that you can enter into this concept that we call rest. If God is a good creator, and he's created you, that means you can enter into rest. Now, why would we say that rest is one of the big ideas that Moses would be pointing to here? Well, let me give you a few of them. I'm not going to give you all of them. Let me give you a few of the reasons why we know that, starting with another refrain that we see. There are a bunch of them. One of the things you will see over and over again as you read through this is it was evening and it was morning the first day. It was evening, it was morning, the second day. We see this over and over again. Now, if you're jumping ahead of me, you're probably thinking, I'll bet we see that seven times. We don't. We don't. How dare you get ahead of me? (laughs) 
we see that one six times. And why is that? Well, because there's a day within the narrative that is left open-ended. There's like this door that is open, this day that is left unfinished. It's an invitation. It's a welcoming into this day. And what day is that? It's the seventh day, the day of rest. So the intended readers, the first time they're seeing this, the immediate thing that they're learning is we are welcomed in, invited in to this idea of rest. This is the first thing that's gonna point us in that direction. The the second thing that's gonna point us in that direction is the same refrain, evening and morning. Now, maybe you didn't catch this, but that's not at all how you and I would say that, right? We, We would say morning and then evening because that's how we understand a day to work. That's our approach, that's our perspective. We wake up in the morning and we start our day. That's how it works. Well, we know historically in Jewish culture, it's the opposite. Their day starts at sundown. Now, why is that? Because every day of their lives, they're gonna start with rest. The very first thing they're gonna do every single day, the priority, what takes precedence over everything else is we are gonna enter into a time of rest. We continue to be pointed in that direction. Let me give you one more. I think this is really cool and it falls within the poetic nature of these patterns and rhythms that we see. But if you were to look at the entirety of the creation narrative and you were to count up every single Hebrew word in that narrative, okay? Count them up one by one. You get to the end and then you track backwards to the middle. Right in the middle of the poem, there is a Hebrew word, right smack dab in the middle. And that word is moad or moed, depending on the translation. And that is one of four Hebrew words used to describe the celebration or the festival called Sabbath, what is held right smack dab in the middle of the poem, as if it were the central point of what the writer is trying to say is the idea of Sabbath, the idea of rest. Over and over again, we're pointed in that direction. In fact, if you've ever wondered why in Jewish culture they prioritize the idea of Sabbath so much, this is why. Because the very first writing that was handed down to them is this massive poem about the idea of Shabbat, the idea of rest. And so they're gonna take that very, very seriously, okay? Now, here's a question, and I think this will help us as we move forward. Why does God start his sacred writings this way? Like, like why would he open up scripture with this idea of Sabbath, with this idea of rest? What is he trying to, to tell us exactly? And I think the first thing is, is that this is obviously a lot more important to God than it is to us, right? Like, let's be honest. In our culture, when we think about rest, we'll get to it when we can get to it. But God says, this is first. This is important. But the real reason he starts with this goes back to the context that I mentioned at the very beginning, Again, let me remind you, this is Moses who is accredited with writing this piece of literature. He is in the wilderness, probably somewhere around Mount Sinai. He is writing to the Israelite people. This is his intended audience. Now, what do we know about the Israelite people at this particular time in history? They are just coming out from slavery within Egypt. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, these people have been slaves in the land of Egypt. What do we know about slavery? It is continuous work. Over and over again, you're gonna work and you're gonna work and you're gonna work from sunup to sundown, seven days a week. Your father, your father's father, on down the line, you're gonna work, you're gonna work, you're gonna work. This is the only thing that they understand about who they are. Their entire lives, 
from generation to generation, they have been told by the Egyptian empire, you are only as valuable as your production. You are only as valuable to us as the bricks that you produce. You only matter to the extent in which you can produce more and more and more for our empire. And so the very first thing God is gonna tell them, the very first lesson he's gonna teach them is your value is not tied up in those things. Your value is not based on production. Your worth does not rely upon what you can offer up. Here's the truth. I'm a good creator. I've created you and you can rest in that. I want you to think about if you were one of the Israelite people in the desert. We read some about it last week. You're in the desert. You desperately need some good news. And this is laid before you. We serve a good creator. He created me in his image. Now I can rest in that. Now we talked about this a few weeks ago, a few months back actually in our last series. And that is that this idea of rest is probably not what you and I initially think it means, right? Um, to, To rest does not mean to be sluggish. It does not mean to be idle. When we think about resting, we think about like sprawling out on the couch and watching Netflix, right? That's the picture that we see. But in this culture, that's not at all how they understand it because rest to them, listen, is this deep, beautiful concept of contentment. It's, it's almost like this big exhale, just I'm, I'm content, I'm good. And in fact, there's this idea of resisting the desire for more. I'm gonna resist the desire to get more and, and to do more. There's almost like this self-control aspect to it. I'm content, I'm good. And this is what God is trying to lean them into. Now, here's what I love about scripture. I love that we can dig into this I love that we can look at the historical context. I love that we can look at the historical message that's being sent, the historical relevance. I love digging into those things. But here's what's even more amazing to me, and that is that thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, this is still more relevant to us today than it ever has been. God's word is still speaking to us thousands of years later. If you don't think that this symbolizes the very culture that we live in, I don't know what you're looking at. I I don't know what you're looking at. This is very much the, the, the culture we live in, the land we live in, the perspective that we have. In fact, in the podcast, Marty Solomon says it this way, we live in a culture that still believes the Egyptian narrative. We still live within that narrative that it's all about what you can produce. It's, it's all about what you can offer up. It's all about what you can bring to the table. That's where your value and your worth is. And we believe it. We believe it. If I think about our culture, just, just think about the things that we truly, honestly value. The, the things that truly, honestly have worth to us. Like, let's not try to be nice about it. Let's be honest about it. What, what are those things? Number one is money right? It's how much money you can make. That is what is most valuable. So I'm going to make as much money as I can. I'm going to save as much as I can. I'm going to buy as much stuff as I can. In fact, we wrap all of that up and we call it our net worth. That is number one. If it's not money, it's, it's our appearance, right? All of a sudden, that's where we get value from. Are we skinny enough? Are we attractive enough? That is where we get our worth from. If it's not those things, it's, it's our social status. How many friends do I have? How many followers do I have on social media? That's where we get our value and our worth from. 
And we're told that over and over and over again, and we believe it over and over and over again. And if you see the common thread within each one of those, it's you gotta keep producing. You gotta keep working. You gotta keep grinding. You gotta keep pushing. These are the things that we're told to focus on. Meanwhile, God is saying, you're getting it wrong. You've got this thing upside down. You're, You're missing the point of who you truly are. You're missing who I truly have created you to be. In fact, we, we even do this within our relationships in ways that we don't even fully understand. Now, I believe that there are biblical principles that, that talk about how we should support ourselves with the right people, put the, the right people around us. We talked about it last week. But I also think we need to be very careful about that perspective as well, because all of a sudden, we're going to begin to look at people in that light. That is going to be their value and their worth to us. What can you offer me? What, what can you produce for me? What, what, what can you give me? And all of a sudden, that becomes their value and their worth. And the problem is that's not how God sees things. That's not the perspective that he has. That's not what he bases our worth and our value on. And see, this whole thing is one of the reasons, as kind of a side note, one of the reasons that we struggle so much with the concept of grace, I mean, over the course of church history, over and over again, we have gotten this thing wrong because grace is unmerited favor. It's unmerited, meaning you can't earn it. Like, like you can't work for it. You can't produce enough to, to get it in return. It is a free gift of God. And we don't even know what to do with that concept. Like we can't even begin to wrap our arms around that because we're so twisted in the cultural narrative that you gotta work, you gotta earn, you gotta produce. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons as we go through scripture, he will eventually call us his children. If you're wondering, again, what your identity is and and who you are, this is one of the beautiful things that we get to look to in scripture. He calls us his children. And the reason I think he does that is because if we have any shot at all of beginning to understand this concept, it's by looking at our little ones. I use this analogy over and over again when I'm up here, but, but my daughter, she's four years old. I'm telling you right now, if she asks for something, I'm gonna get it for her. Like without hesitation, if I'm walking through the store and I see something that I think she would like, I'm gonna get it for her. She doesn't have to earn it. She doesn't have to produce anything so that I will give it to her. Listen, because she is inherently valuable to me. She is inherently valuable to me. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. We, we can't see ourselves like that. The idea that somebody would look at us that way, we, we can't even begin to open our minds to that. Because again, we're wrapped up in the cultural narrative. So that somebody would love us freely? Somebody would just lavish gifts upon us freely because he loves us? No, no, no. There are ulterior motives to that. We, we got to do something to earn that. This is not true. Here here is the fundamental truth about us being image bearers. We see it from the very first narrative and you you need to really like settle this in your heart. Listen, listen, God is good. He's a good creator and he created you in his image. God is good. He's a good creator and he created you in his image. Which means, listen closely, that means that you are inherently loved. That means that you are intrinsically valuable. That means without measure, you are accepted. That is the truth. 
If you have been believing anything else, you have been believing a lie. Your identity is wrapped up in the fact that you bear his image. The king of the universe, you bear his image, and you can rest in that. You can be content in that. You don't have to do anything to earn that. The truth of the matter is if somehow you could like wrap your arms around that, if somehow you could let that take root in your heart, it would change your life. Like, like, seriously, it would change your perspective forever if you actually would begin to see the way that he views you without doing anything. Listen to me, without doing anything, you are loved, you are valuable, you are accepted. And we need to begin to speak that over our lives more than we do today. I know that this is so hard. I know that this is so difficult for us to, to actually understand and comprehend. We, we wrestle with that. Maybe even right now you're wrestling with that. Your heart and your mind, you're wrestling because that's what I do. I'm like, no, no, that doesn't make sense. I got, I got to work for it. Like, I, I got to do something to, to get this in return, but we got to continue to soften our hearts. Got to continue to speak the truth over us. We bear his image and we can rest in that. We can rest in that. As we move forward throughout this series, we have to lay that out as the foundation. In fact, as we move forward, the rest of it is not gonna matter at all if we don't first understand this if we don't first understand this. Please stand with me. One of the, uh, one of the really cool and interesting things that I learned about this concept over the past few weeks, and I actually, I saw this from several different sources, but um, I, I, I saw that the idea of resting and this idea of contentment that we've been talking about is ultimately an act of telling the truth. Resting in contentment is, is a declaration of the truth, meaning what we're declaring, what we're displaying in our lives is the truth that God does love us, that he is good, and so we can rest in that. When we're able to take that posture, we're telling the truth about who he is and who we are in his image. And so here's how I want to end this today. I want you maybe even just close your eyes so you can focus in. And I want you to honestly ask yourself, what, what truth have you been telling yourself up to this point? In other words, what, what have you really been basing your value and your worth off of? And again, I want you to be honest. I want you to be vulnerable. Think, think about this. Have you been basing it off of how much money you make? Have you been basing it off of how quickly you can move up the corporate ladder? Have you been basing it off of how many friends you have? Have you been basing it off of how you look, how much you produce, what you're good at? What is the truth about where you have been getting your identity from? And here's what I want you to do. Like in your mind's eye, I want you to picture those things, like compile them up. And I want you to speak the truth over them. And that is none of these things define your worth. None of these things define your value. None of these things truly define who you are. Continue to speak that truth over these things until it's evident in your life that you are made in the image of God you are inherently loved and valued. And now it's time to rest in that. Now it's time to find your contentment in that.
I called this message the result because I think this is the ultimate result. If we understood what this meant, if we understood what our true nature is, who we are in the eyes of God, the result would be a life of rest and contentment. Might beckon the words of Jesus, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We've got a choice to make. Our perspective will make the decision. Our perspective will make the decision because either we can move forward with the lies that we've been telling ourselves, with the cultural narrative, we can move forward with a posture of fear and a posture of insecurity and a posture of inadequacy and see the world that way, treat people that way, Or if we believe this truth, we might be able to move forward with a posture of love, posture of goodness, a posture of contentment. I don't know about you, but that's the decision I wanna make. That's the life that I wanna live. That's the perspective that I wanna have. And I very much believe God would say the same.